Hey guys, welcome to Moderate Party. I'm your host, Hilary Lombard, and I'm sure that many of you have noticed that we've been off the air for a little while. This wasn't a planned hiatus like we've done in the past. It was unplanned, unexpected, and pretty difficult to avoid. So today, I really want to talk about why, because I think that it's important. For the last three months, due to a national shortage, I've been unable to access medication that I need and have taken daily for 15 years. When I'm not on my meds, I experience withdrawals. I can get sick, I get a headache, and many aspects of my life become really difficult for me to manage, and unfortunately, this podcast was not an exception. I really love making this show. I love interacting with you guys, and going off air definitely was not what I wanted to do, but it's what I felt I had to do. It's, um... It's weird. Every month I go to the pharmacy and I get my prescription filled, and I don't really think about it. Sometimes there can be delays, insurance issues, waiting for a delivery, something like that, and it can be stressful. Totally. But I didn't realize how stressful this could get. I never really considered that there would be a day where I just couldn't get my meds. Meds that I need, like really need. And I don't know if you've ever been denied access to medication, but it's a pretty scary feeling. Especially if it's a situation like mine where there's not an endpoint in sight, like no pharmacist could tell me when this was going to change or when I'd be able to get my medicine. Things really started kicking off for me in November. I went to pick up my prescription and the pharmacist gave it to me, but told me that I shouldn't expect to get this filled next month. When I asked why, they explained to me that there's a national shortage and that they don't know if they're going to get another shipment, at least not anytime soon. When I asked for more information, it was actually impressive how unhelpful my pharmacist was. I asked if they knew when they'd be getting the medication in. They said no. I asked if they could put me on a waiting list. They said no. I asked if anybody would call and let me know when my prescription could be filled. They said no. The only advice that they could give me is to call every day and see if they'd gotten the medication in stock. So I did. I called every day. And then I started calling every three days. Nothing. So I started rationing the medication that I did have, taking half a dose to try and make it last a little bit longer. At the time, I was thinking, you know, maybe a week late, two weeks late tops. I couldn't really imagine a situation in which they would let me go two weeks without a critical medication and that everybody would just be fine with that. But that's what happened. Eventually, I got a notification in February, two months later, letting me know that my prescription was ready for pickup. Incredible. I was stoked. Except when I went to pick it up, they told me that all they could give me is a partial fill, meaning that they could give me 10 pills. Not my full dose. Ten pills would only cover me for five days. Now, spoiler alert, people, even in the weak-ass month of February, there's more than five days in a month. So I told them, like, you know, hey, I'm very thankful for this. This is great. But when do you think that I'll be able to pick up the other 50 pills that I need for my monthly prescription? And that's when they told me that I can't. That if I take these ten pills home today... I will void the remainder of my prescription, forfeiting my right to the rest of my medication. I asked if there was anywhere else that I could get it filled, like a different location, and they told me that they couldn't tell me if any of their other locations had it. They suggested that I call every pharmacy in town and see if they could fill it. Just a casual task. <laughs> um, I contacted my doctor, and she's great, truly, but all that she could really do is offer to write me a prescription for a substitute medication. And that wasn't really helpful because there were reasons that I wasn't already taking those medications. They either made me sick or they didn't work for me. Which is how I got on my current medication in the first place. 
So I was left with a choice between medication for five days or experimenting with a substitute. So I went back to rationing. I took half of my dose to make that five days into ten, and I got to deal with withdrawal symptoms throughout the entire month from going on and off my medication. Eventually, at the end of the month, the pharmacy finally got my original medication back in stock. But the cherry on top is that when I went to pick it up, they couldn't fill it because the process had taken so long that my yearly prior authorization had actually expired. But finally, after rationing or going without my medication for three to five months, I was able to get my prescription filled. And hopefully, knock on wood, that concludes my personal experience with drug shortages. But the unfortunate reality is that that experience, the one that I just described to you, it's not that unique. It's happening to people all across the country all the time. I've been noticing a lot of shortages with um, some of the medications that I've needed, one for my son um, and some for myself. Like recently I went to CVS and they told me that the kind of insulin that I use, I'm type 1 diabetic, the kind of insulin that I use is out of stock. And not only was it out of stock at that location, it was out of stock at all of the other locations, right? Well, I'm sitting here on the phone with the lady and she's like, yeah, we're out. And that was her, that was it, you know? And in my, my life, it's, it's oxygen and then it's insulin. I need, I need both to live. When I was going through all of this, one of the things that made it particularly complicated is that I just couldn't wrap my head around how something like this happens. How does the United States just run out of medication? How does that happen? We're the most developed nation on Earth, the wealthiest nation on Earth. Like, some of the most breakthrough medical discoveries in the last century have come from the United States. How do we just run out of meds? So for our first episode back, that's what I want to talk about. Because while my personal ordeal is over, people all across the country are still dealing with this shit. And I want to know why. I'm Hillary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party. Let's get started. This morning, concerns growing about local drug shortages in parts of the country as the triple-demic tightens its grip. We have two prescription drug shortages to tell you about tonight. The Food and Drug Administration announcing a nationwide drug shortage. According to a new FDA report, nationwide shortages are getting worse. 116 as of this week, including a cancer medication for children. Drug shortages. The thing that Balto risked it all to prevent. In recent years, we've seen drug shortages across every layer of our healthcare system. Many Americans are having some trouble finding high-profile prescription drugs. The hospital can't get enough of the blood thinner heparin, crucial for cardiac surgery. Many pharmacies right now, it's commonplace that they're low on supplies, everything from antibiotics to antivirals, even kids' over-the-counter medications. As the number of bacterial infections increase, the antibiotics we need to fight them are getting harder to find. The FDA is working to address a shortage of asthma medication. Pharmacy operations manager Brian Howard says they've seen a shortage in nearly every drug they use at one point or another. The Food and Drug Administration released a list of more than 100 drugs that could soon see a shortage of supply. Some of the drugs on the list are Adderall, insulin, even the life-saving drug We've Narcan. We've seen shortages of saline, morphine, antibiotics, and critical cancer drugs. When the pandemic arrived in the United States three years ago, the country was already short on the drugs needed to place people on ventilators. We were screwed from the beginning. For the last four to five years, we've been experiencing a national shortage of Pitocin, which is the medication used to induce labor and control bleeding from postnatal hemorrhages. The problem has gotten so prolific 
that experts have described drug shortages in the United States as a never-ending game of whack-a-mole. And it often seems like the more critical the medication, the worse the situation is. Cancer drug shortages represent a tragedy that's happening in slow motion. For example, etoposide is a cancer drug that's been on the market for over 40 years and typically costs less than $50 a vial. It is given to patients for nearly a dozen different kinds of cancer. But in 2018, due to a manufacturing delay, this drug was on shortage across the country. Which of our patients with cancer should get it? How can we prioritize between American lives? Should our limited vials go to an older woman who is just diagnosed with lung cancer, a young man who has already been successfully taking it for testicular cancer, or a baby with neuroblastoma, an aggressive cancer for which this drug is recommended, but others might substitute? As a doctor who's devoted my life to fighting cancer, it's hard to express how horrible that is. In this particular case, we had enough drug for our lung and testicular cancer patients, and our heroic pharmacist was able to scrape together enough etoposide from the bottom of the leftover vials to also treat the infant patient. That is insane. Pharmacists shouldn't be trying to get leftover medication out of the bottom of a vial like they're trying to lick crumbs out of a muffin tin. It's ridiculous, but it's happening all the time. And imagine being one of those cancer patients and having to decide between delaying your treatment at a time when your best chance of beating cancer is to act quickly and aggressively or experimenting with something less safe and less effective that can wreck your body and maybe not even help you. And it also puts doctors in an impossible situation of having to choose. Who wants to be picking how you prioritize one person over another? One child over another. One child over another. The American Hospital Association reported in 2011 that virtually all community hospitals they surveyed had experienced a drug shortage in the last six months. Two-thirds of those hospitals had experienced a shortage of cancer drugs. 88% were short on pain medication. And 95% were lacking the anesthetic drug needed for surgery. And that was a decade ago. But we still haven't fixed this problem, and it's only getting worse. Between 2021 and 2022, drug shortages increased by 30%. We are currently at a five-year high for the number of active drug shortages, meaning that we are experiencing more shortages right now than at the height of the pandemic, which is crazy. And all of these things lead us to one irrefutable conclusion. Drug shortages are increasing, they're lasting longer, and they're putting lives as well as our nation's security at risk. The question is why, and the answer is complicated. Let's start by talking about generic drugs. Generic drugs can be just as good as the brand names, but cost much less. In many markets, the brand name is king, right? We can't help it. Americans love a brand. But imagine going to the store for an Oreo, and the cashier hands you something called a cream between. If you're looking for a Kit Kat, you might not want a cat caught. Or maybe you go to the store and you say that your son would really like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Halloween costume. And the cashier tells you that while they don't have that, they have something very, very close and hands you the entirely real pubescent frog of Silent War costume, which on name alone truly may be better. But I guess that's really in the eye of the beholder. Anyway, generic drugs. So, so if you're looking for a name brand, you don't necessarily go with a generic because you think that it's better. You go with it because it's cheaper right? Especially when it comes to prescription drugs, which we've been complaining have been too expensive since the 80s. That's the first time that we see a noticeable increase in the amount of frustration around the growing cost of prescription drugs. And at that time, 
Drug makers said basically like, yeah, hey, we know that these are expensive and we're super sorry about it, but innovation isn't cheap. And if we only charge what the people want us to charge, we wouldn't be able to produce the innovative and life-saving treatments that they like so much. So Congress decides to weigh in on this debate. They put their thinking caps on and they settle on something called the Hatch-Waxman Act. It's a piece of legislation that basically lays out the following framework. A name-brand drug manufacturer will get exclusivity for 12 years. That's how long the patent on their drug will last. Once that patent expires, it opens the drug up to the generic market, which at the time only represented 13% of the U.S. drug market. But once Hatch-Waxman is passed, generics explode. They take off right away, and today, generic drugs make up 90% of the U.S. drug market. In the years since Hatch-Waxman was passed, we have developed a healthcare system built on generic drugs, and it has brought the cost of healthcare down, both for patients and the hospitals and healthcare providers that make up the industry. So why does this system suck so bad? Everything I've described so far sounds like it's working okay, but it's not, right? I mean, a working system doesn't produce a record number of drug shortages. So to understand what's going wrong, you need to look at the supply chain. Okay, for this next part, we're going to be doing something that is every podcaster's worst nightmare. We're going to have to talk about something that is not only boring, but also incredibly complicated. That's the devil's duo. And you're going to want to bail. I know you are. If I was in your position, I'd probably want to bail too. But I need you to stick it out because I don't want to pull this card. But kids with cancer aren't getting their drugs because of what I'm about to explain to you. And you wouldn't want to bail on kids with cancer. I mean, that'd be terrible. So focus up, pay attention, and I'm going to try to make this as short and painless as possible. Here we go. Now that you understand how dependent we are on generic drugs, you need to understand how a generic drug gets made, which means that you have to understand the pharmaceutical supply chain. A system truly so confusing and so complicated, they couldn't even break it down effectively on 60 Minutes, a show that literally exists to explain complicated concepts in under, you guessed it, 60 Minutes. They had two generic drug experts try to draw the supply chain on a whiteboard to make it a little bit easier for people to understand, and the results weren't great. Listen to Bill Whitaker, the host of 60 Minutes, try to struggle through this diagram that they drew him. Why is all of that part of the process? Confusion is on purpose. This is clear as mud. There's nothing more efficient than this. No, Bill, there's actually a lot of things more efficient than this. But efficiency isn't exactly what motivates the pharmaceutical supply chain. So let's back up. And for the sake of our purposes, I'm going to really condense the supply chain down into just a couple key areas that will serve what we need to get through the rest of this conversation. So we're going to start at the beginning. And that means that we're going to start with the suppliers. Pharmaceutical suppliers are basically the people that gather up all of the raw ingredients and the active pharmaceutical ingredients that you need to create a drug. Okay, that's their only job, hunting and gathering. And they take all of the ingredients that they've gathered and they sell them to a manufacturer. The manufacturer is in charge of mixing all of those ingredients together and actually creating the finished product. That finished product is then sold to one of a couple different middlemen. Those middlemen are purchasing the finished product on behalf of a hospital, a healthcare provider, or a pharmacy. Then those medications are ultimately sold to you, the consumer plus or minus an insurance company or two. Okay, so that wasn't so bad, right? But here's the thing. Drug shortages are a direct result of a supply chain that is broken at almost every level. Like seriously, this supply chain is more vulnerable than a Jenga tower surrounded by drunk people. Let's start at the bottom with the suppliers. They gather the ingredients, right? 
So 80% of the companies that make these active pharmaceutical ingredients are located overseas. It's actually even more troubling when you look at the list of drugs that the FDA has deemed critical, because 90 to 95% of those critical drugs are dependent on ingredients manufactured overseas. And anybody that's read anything about a spy balloon can probably guess why that's going to be a problem when we talk about it a little bit later in the episode. Next up, we have the generic drug manufacturers. They are a critical link in the supply chain because they're the ones that take those ingredients and actually make the medicine, right? But they're also possibly the most vulnerable piece of this supply chain. And a lot of that has to do with price and profit margin which might actually feel a little bit antithetical because so much of the conversation about U.S. healthcare is centered around this idea that the cost is just too high. But when it comes to generic drug manufacturing and the impact it has on drug shortages, the problem might actually be that prices are too low. Generic drugs are nearly identical to their brand name equivalent. They have to be, otherwise you couldn't switch them out as easily. Generic drugs are essentially substitutes for name brand drugs, which means that the actual makeup of the generic drug and the name brand drug is identical, or pretty close to it. It has to be, otherwise you couldn't substitute one for the other, right? Which means that manufacturing a generic drug is just as expensive and just as complex as manufacturing a brand name drug. But the difference is the price tag you command for the finished product. When you go to the hospital and they put you on an IV, Think about the things that go into that IV bag. Common things like IV saline, sterile water, propofol. All of those drugs cost less than 50 cents a unit, but they're no less complicated to make. Which means that the profit margin is razor thin. Sometimes a manufacturer will only make pennies per unit. So the only way to accumulate any kind of profit is by securing large high-volume contracts. These are the economic drivers that cause companies to exit the generic drug market, and it prevents new companies from entering it. It leaves us critically dependent on whichever manufacturers are able to stay in business and makes us really vulnerable to situations like what's unfolding right now around albuterol, one of the most common drugs used to treat asthma. It's been on the FDA's drug shortage list since October, but the recent shutdown of a major manufacturer could make finding albuterol even harder. Illinois-based Acorn Operating Co. announced last month it was closing all its locations as it filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, so he's really bearing the lead on this because when he says that a major manufacturer shut down, what he's not saying is that that is one of four manufacturers for albuterol, one of the most common medications to treat a disorder that impacts 25 million Americans. Four companies. That's insane. So literally when that major manufacturer pulled out, 25% of the United States albuterol supply went with them. What really smacks me about that is that it's actually double the average. As crazy as it sounds, the average number of manufacturers per generic drug is two. And between 2004 and 2016, 40% of generic drugs were supplied by only one manufacturer. And this is a major vulnerability because when you are dependent on a really limited number of manufacturers for critical medications, you need every piece of the supply chain to go off without a hitch to avoid a drug shortage. You need everything to go right, and there's so many reasons for it to go wrong. And that's where I come in. We can take a credit card from anywhere in the world and deliver a product anywhere in the world. We can make a profit on every transaction. We're just the middleman. That's limitless. 
If you just take a quick glance at this predicament, it would be very easy to hear a generic drug CEO say, yeah, we've decided to stop making a medication that people need to live because there's not a lot of money in it. And it would be reasonable to think, hey, that CEO is an asshole. One of the two remaining VinChristian manufacturers, Teva Pharmaceuticals, announced it would stop making VinChristian for U.S. hospitals. They indicated that it was a business decision. They could make more money on more profitable drugs uh, than VinChristian. I don't understand why companies in good conscience can make those kinds of decisions. None of these companies are poor companies. They have the opportunity to not make as much on one drug and still make plenty of margin and profit on other drugs. That's Ross Days, and though it might not sound like it, he's part of the problem. Ross is a former director at a group purchasing organization called Visient. In order to buy generic drugs or medical supplies, healthcare groups work through groups like Visient that are known as group purchasing organizations, sometimes shortened to GPOs. A GPO allows hospitals, healthcare providers, and pharmacies, big and small, to buy goods and services at a better price than they'd be able to negotiate on their own. It does this by leveraging the collective buying power of all of its clients. So basically, a small pharmacy would get discounts normally reserved for much larger pharmacies. It works the same in a hospital. In the last 30 years, GPOs have seen such a significant rise in both power and prominence that you'd be hard-pressed to find a pharmacy or a hospital that isn't a member of one. And on its face, a GPO is good for everybody. Drug manufacturers are able to secure the massive volume they need to make a profit, hospitals and pharmacies are able to get the drugs that they need at a lower price, and in theory, those cost savings trickle down to the consumer. But it sounds good, right? Unless those GPOs become too powerful and too concentrated. We've established that every hospital and pharmacy in America is likely to be part of a GPO, right? So there's probably hundreds of them in America, right? Group purchasing organizations control more than $250 billion in hospital purchases annually. The biggest three account for about 90% of the business. They typically award the contract to the manufacturer with the lowest priced drug. Add in all the complex fees and the group purchasing organizations grow wealthier while losing manufacturers are squeezed out. So 90% of the drugs in the United States are purchased by one of three companies. Awesome. So good. Because everybody knows that when the market has less options, consumers benefit, obviously. So the main purpose of a GPO is to secure a low price for its members, right? And we have three GPOs that completely dominate 90% of the purchasing, which doesn't leave a lot of negotiating room for drug manufacturers. If you refuse to sell through group purchasing organization or through drug wholesalers, you will not exist. You're out. You are out. That's Bill Simmons, a former generic drug executive. I think it's really important to think about the reason that a GPO exists. The primary function of a GPO is to secure the lowest price for its members. And when all of the purchasing power is concentrated into three companies, they're pretty powerful. And this triggers a race to the bottom on price. And a lot of the executives at these middleman companies are very quick to say pharma companies, aka the drug manufacturers, set the price. That it's not up to a PBM or a GPO, because everybody has free will, baby. But the thing is, they don't. They have no leverage over a GPO. None. So the GPO names the price, and it's up to the drug company to get there. Especially because, since the product they're selling is identical to other drug manufacturers making that same product, 
they can only compete on price because right now there is no incentive for producing a higher quality product or running a high quality operation. Think of it this way. Imagine that you own a sandwich shop and a competitor moves in across the street. So you go to check out what their store is like. And when you go in, you see that the inside of their building is identical to your building. Their menu is identical to your menu and their ingredients are the same as your ingredients. You are selling the same product in the same establishment offering the same experience. This new competitor is going to take a big chunk of your business because why wouldn't they? You have the same product. The only way that you can set yourself apart from this competitor is to lower the cost of your sandwiches because nobody wants to pay more for the same sandwich if they don't have to. Except now, you are stealing your competitor's business, and the only way that they can stop losing money is to make their price even lower than yours. And it goes back and forth, and that is how this plays out in a generic drug market. Everyone is selling the same sandwich, so they just keep dropping the price. And this strips away any incentive to increase quality or create a more resilient supply chain because anything that you do to increase quality adds to your overhead and doesn't differentiate you from your competitor because you're legally not really allowed to share those things. If the end product is exactly the same, you have to cut the cost if you want to cut the price. So how do you do that without losing money? You cut corners on everything else. If the manufacturer of a generic drug finds a way to make that drug more reliable, more consistent, safer, even more efficacious, better at, at curing diseases, uh, the manufacturer cannot communicate this information to the buyers of, of the drug. Therefore, he cannot profit by making these changes. What's happened in this market is the FDA imposes on the market a vision that all generics are the same, the only difference among them is price, and that's the only difference it allows to be communicated. So the principle here is that if you force buyers and sellers to compete on price and price alone, you're going to get a race to the bottom on every other feature of the product. And that's what's happening in this market. That smooth talk in Texan is Dr. John Goodman, a leading health policy expert. And the argument that he's outlining is true. When there's no incentive for investing in quality systems, people won't do it, especially when they don't have the margin for it. And the result is an even more fragile supply chain that's prone to manufacturing delays and shutdowns that stem from quality issues or contamination. And if you're struggling to remember whose fault that is, just think back to who is making money off of this system. Because it's working for somebody. Drug costs keep going up like somebody is making money off of this process. And it's the people in the middle. By some estimates, these middlemen, the GPOs and the pharmacy benefit managers, are adding $200 billion to the cost of healthcare every year. And a lot of people point to a safe harbor law that was passed in 1987. It made sure that these organizations, like GPOs, were shielded from criminal penalties for taking kickbacks from their suppliers. So the result is that organizations in the middle can demand payments from drug companies in return for placing their product in a certain recommendation tier. So in addition to squeezing them for what little profits they do make, they can demand a fee on top of that, like a pay-for-play fee. And the result only hurts the patient. If you've ever been taking a medication for a while and you're on it one year and then the next year you find out that it's not covered by insurance or it's suddenly gone up in price, it's likely because the middleman stopped getting a kickback. GPOs actually even encourage manufacturers to pay premium fees to become a sole supplier. It's a pay-for-play practice that narrows the supply chain even further, and they're getting paid for it. But of course, GPO executives don't see it that way. 
It's not a GPO's best interest at all to drive anybody out of the market. I've attributed more of the drug shortage problem to some decisions by FDA to start evaluating manufacturers differently than they had in the past. Which is bullshit. And I'm sorry to put it so crudely, but you could not toast a piece of bread with the level of heat that the FDA is putting on generic drug manufacturers. And you don't need to take my word for it. Here's audio from a Senate hearing that was investigating this exact issue. Among other things, that increasing FDA oversight of generic manufacturers is playing a role in increasing the cost of generic drugs and cited increases in FDA oversight as a factor contributing to drug shortages. You know, one way that regulatory opponents often track FDA oversight is by looking at the number of warning letters that the agency sends out. And these letters basically tell a company to stop breaking the law or face the consequences from that. And there has been a significant increase in FDA warning letters in the past two years, in the past few years. And it would certainly be noteworthy if those letters went to drug manufacturers. Do you know how many of them did, Dr. Gottlieb? I suspect a significant portion of those letters went to drug manufacturers. Dr. Gottlieb, it's a trap. Get out while you can. If she laughs before she asks the question, you best believe she already knows the answer. Well, actually, my staff checked with the FDA this week, and it turns out that almost none of those letters went to drug manufacturers. There it is. In fact, in 2013, only 11 of the nearly 7,000 FDA warning letters were about generic drug manufacturing problems, and that was down from a grand total of 20 such letters in 2011. Woof. 0.15% of warning letters that the FDA sent went to generic drug manufacturers. So let's revisit our sweet friend Ross's statement about what causes drug shortages. I've attributed more of the drug shortage problem to some decisions by FDA to start evaluating manufacturers differently than they had in the past. What he's really saying is, I'm the bad guy. Duh. The excuse is even more ridiculous if you consider how powerless the FDA actually is when it comes to generic drugs and mitigating a drug shortage. Yes, they handle the approvals, like if a generic drug wants to enter the market, the FDA has to sign off on it. Manufacturers have to register at the FDA, sure. But when it comes down to drug shortages, you really have to consider, is the FDA just really bad at this, or are we not letting them be good at it? Consider this. The FDA does not have end-to-end visibility of the pharmaceutical supply chain. They don't require manufacturers to disclose where they get their supplies or who they're getting them from. And as a result, Nobody, not the federal government or private industry, has full visibility into the supply chain, which is basically like calling the cops and when they show up, they have their eyes closed and they just refuse to open them. And this exacerbates the risk of a drug shortage because the FDA lacks the ability to accurately predict a risk. They can't even see which suppliers a manufacturer is using. So they can't see if a drug only has two ingredient suppliers, so they don't know how vulnerable it is. Earlier in the episode when I was telling you that most of the pharmaceutical ingredients come from Asia, that's an estimate created by private industry because the FDA does not know. And that's a threat to national security. But I'll come back to that. A drug manufacturer that gets its active pharmaceutical ingredients from like 30 suppliers is much more resilient than somebody getting it from two, right? Because if one of those suppliers shuts down, they would have another 29 to go to. Whereas if you only have two suppliers and one shuts down, then you're 
dependent on one supplier for your entire business. Therefore, you're more vulnerable. And the drug that manufacturer is producing is more likely to see a shortage. Not only that, but the shortage that it does see is more likely to last longer because the supply chain is so brittle that there's no flex capacity. There's no way to make up that lost supply because they're dependent on one supplier. That supplier can't give them any more ingredients. They're giving them all they have, and that drug manufacturer is operating at full capacity. They can't produce any more. And we could have prepared for that, bought up an emergency supply of that medication from another country, tried to procure the ingredients and start making it ourselves. It's just like every annoying know-it-all's favorite phrase. Failure to plan is planning to fail. And the FDA is planning to fail. They also have no way to gauge volume. So, for example, if you called up the FDA and asked them, hey, which country sells the U.S. the most generic drugs? They would tell you, well, we've approved the most manufacturers from India. For the sake of this example, let's call it 10. The FDA has approved 10 manufacturers from India, maybe another five from Europe, and let's say two from China. That would lead you to think that we import the most drugs from India. But the FDA has no way of knowing that for sure because they can't gauge volume. So those 10 manufacturers in India could be tiny, and those two manufacturers in China could be enormous, meaning that we would actually be getting the most drugs from China. But the FDA doesn't know for sure. And that lack of visibility has the pharmaceutical supply chain out here acting like John Cena. You can't see me, dog! They can't even gauge demand on critical drugs because current law does not require manufacturers to report an increase in demand or export restrictions. And those sinister middlemen, they don't have to report any potentially helpful data to the FDA. Nobody has to talk to the FDA. Okay, no, I'm being mean. I'm sorry. In fairness to the FDA, they do collect some data from manufacturers, but they literally can't even use the data they have because, and I quote, The FDA acknowledges that it has been unable to use this data to conduct analyses or predictive modeling because the information is unstructured and buried in PDFs within individual drug applications. They can't predict drug shortages because of a PDF? Like, come on! I'm out here and I'm trying to be fair and reasonable, and I'm not one of those people that think that government is just this ineffective bureaucracy that can never help us. No, like, I'm pretty pro-government. But when I hear shit like that, it makes me wonder why. Why be pro-government when they can be stopped by something like a PDF? The government of the most powerful country on earth can't seem to work their way through a PDF document. But it's fine because it's not like, I don't know, life-saving treatment is on the line. And it's just, it's also like, like, have you considered, I don't know, hear me out, trying? Surely the FDA has the resources to, like, hire an intern whose only job is to pull those big, mean PDFs out and create the structured data needed to create these predictive models and prevent drug shortages. I mean, come on! The FDA does not even have the authority to require manufacturers to recall most drugs. They can recall food products, biological products like vaccines medical devices, and controlled substances, but for some reason, the government decides to draw the line on medical drugs. It can only recommend a voluntary recall, which really does not protect the consumer at all, because consider in 2020, we're in the midst of the pandemic, right? We've all gone crazy washing our hands. They're basically just bones at this point. And we're using hand sanitizer everywhere we go. And a major manufacturer of that hand sanitizer floods the market with potentially toxic hand sanitizer. It's contaminated. 
And it's bad enough that the FDA asks them, probably very nicely, to recall that product. But since they could only ask, and because it was only voluntary, some companies complied. Some complied really slowly, and some just freaking didn't. Leaving toxic hand sanitizer on the market for all of us to use. And technically, that part is not the FDA's fault, right? Like, the FDA doesn't get to decide what type of authorization or authority they have. So, as is so often the case, Congress has dropped the ball. The situation with the FDA is also further complicated by how dependent we are on foreign manufacturers for critical drugs, because the FDA only has jurisdiction in the U.S. market. So their visibility and ability to influence foreign drug manufacturers and foreign drug suppliers is really limited, which is another reason why our dependence on these foreign manufacturers is a serious problem. So how dependent are we? There's a little-known fact about some of the most common drugs Americans take, from antibiotics to heart medicine to antidepressants. 80% of the key ingredients used to make them come from overseas. We import two-thirds of all drugs in our country from abroad, and the situation only gets worse when you look at the active pharmaceutical ingredients. The Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response estimated that 90-95% to of generic sterile injectable drugs that are used for critical care in the United States rely on ingredients from China and India. So let's talk about India first. India is dominant in the global pharmaceutical market, especially when it comes to generics. One in every three pills consumed in the United States was made in India. And this did not happen by accident. India has made a serious investment in becoming the world's pharmacy. Long-term strategic investments in pharmaceutical manufacturing has paid off. And as it stands today, the cost of manufacturing active pharmaceutical ingredients needed for most medications is 15 to 40 percent cheaper in India. The United States is India's top trading partner and their most important export market, and India is also the world's largest democracy. But trade tensions between the U.S. and India have been on the rise in the years since the Trump administration. And not only that, but being heavily dependent on one country for generic drugs is a problem because if something happens like, I don't know, let's say a global pandemic, We're at an increased risk for shortage and not being able to get the treatment that we need to survive. The country that you're relying on may have to put its own people first. And that's exactly what India did during COVID-19 when they stopped exporting key drugs, specifically one very high-profile drug that you might remember from the ramblings of this man. A lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers before you catch it. The frontline workers, many, many are taking it. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Hydroxychloroquine? I'm taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. Right now, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I started taking it. Because I think it's good. I've heard a lot of good stories. And if it's not good, I'll tell you right, I'm not going to get hurt by it. It's been around for 40 years for malaria for lupus, for other things. I take it. Frontline workers take it. A lot of doctors take it. Excuse me. A lot of doctors take it. I take it. India banned exports of hydroxychloroquine, also known as good old hydroxy, and all of the ingredients that go into making it. All in all, India banned a total of 26 active pharmaceutical ingredients from being exported overseas, which put the U.S. in a real bind. And you can't really blame India for it because if we had a stockpile of drugs or the ingredients necessary to make them, that was critical to fighting the pandemic, I'm sure that many people would not want us to export them. But these are the cards that we've been dealt. Now let's talk about the other major player, China. 
the Darth Vader to our Obi-Wan. Have you come to destroy me, Obi-Wan? China controls approximately 90% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients as well as the raw materials that are used to make them. And their dominance is even clearer when it comes to antibiotics. A Department of Commerce study found that 97% of all antibiotics in the United States came from China. And I'm going to let Senator Langford explain why that should freak you out. Let me set a scenario in front of us. Uh, Russia invades Ukraine, and so immediately the United States cuts off Russian companies, and Russian American companies based in Russia shut down. China invades Taiwan. The United States says, we're not going to do business with China right now. 10,000-some-odd number of our active ingredients are coming out of China. What happens that next day? Besides my panic attack, Senator Langford, uh, nothing good. The scenario that off-brand Mike Pence just laid out for us is truly a nightmare scenario, but also a very real possibility. We are waging an economic war against Russia right now, and we don't have the leverage over them that China has over us. India is obviously the trading partner of choice, and it would be easy to think, why not just reduce our dependency on China by doing more trade with India? Yes, there's a risk, but surely it's less risk than China, who's classified as a foreign adversary. And that's not wrong necessarily, but shifting away from China towards India would be like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Because India might be the leading manufacturer of APIs, but India depends on China for sourcing nearly three-quarters of their APIs in generic drug formulations, making it incredibly difficult to decouple from China, because we're not the only country that's dependent on them. There is no escape. You would think that we would at least take the situation more seriously when it comes to our military. Because it seems like common sense that if you would shoot down a country's spy balloon, you definitely don't want them to be the primary supplier of your soldier and veterans' critical medications. The Defense Department told my staff that with the exception of just three drugs, uh, the, the uh, DLA is not able to assess with certainty whether any of the other drugs it purchases rely solely on sources from either China or India. So given this blind spot, as was mentioned in the previous comments, uh, what would happen to veterans, to military personnel, and to the U.S. healthcare system at large if, if these raw materials, including those sourced from China and India, simply became unavailable? We would have significant shortages. And, and that's a little bit about what we have today, where our, the, the DOD and, and our military are relying on the same commercial market as hospitals. We also have no way of definitively knowing how dependent we actually are on China or any other country because we can't see their involvement in our pharmaceutical supply chain. Um, where we are flying completely blind is in our understanding of the, uh, where the key raw chemicals that go into making the active ingredient come from. We have some anecdotal evidence, but we really have no systematic understanding. Private companies are choosing to invest in China and manufacture there, and yet they don't reveal where they're making their products. It's not a requirement for those companies to reveal which products are made in China, which products are made in India, which products are made in the US. And without that information, we really are vulnerable. I'm glaring so hard at the FDA right now. I wish that you guys could see it. I'm just mean mugging the shit out of them. If only somebody could get us that data. Maybe we could do something to improve our situation, but good God, it might be locked in a PDF. All jokes aside, drug shortages are a major problem and our generic drug supply chain is as fragile and brittle as a seventh grader's self-esteem. So it's only going to get worse unless we step up and really try to fix this, and we need to. 
Because all too often, our most vulnerable groups are the ones that suffer disproportionately from a drug shortage. I'm actually scared. I'm scared for me. I'm scared for my friends. I'm scared for every kid that's fighting cancer. He was at the cancer center in the chair on Tuesday when his oncologist told him they didn't have enough. There are no options. Vincristine does not have a compatible replacement drug. There is no option to replace it or to substitute it in cases of crisis like this. This shouldn't be happening. This drug is so important. It's life-saving. It's, as my mom said, it's like the backbone of all chemos and all of treatment, and then all of a sudden it just goes to a stop. I, I'm just scared. That is heartbreaking and completely inexcusable. No one should be in that situation, especially not a child. Thankfully, the situation is correctable if we choose to correct it. And so far, there are reasons to be optimistic. First, I'm very happy to see that people are starting to turn on the middlemen. Recently, a handful of advocacy groups wrote a letter to the FTC asking the agency to investigate the monopolistic middlemen in the healthcare supply chain known as group purchasing organizations. Chuck Grassley and a bipartisan group of senators have been pushing the FTC to investigate the shady business practices of pharmacy benefit managers as well. And while the FTC has been slow to respond, this heightened scrutiny and public pressure is really promising. We're also seeing a lot of real work being done in government on these issues. The House Committee on Energy and Commerce is pushing the FDA for answers on their handling of drug shortages. House Republicans in particular are putting pressure on the FDA. They sent a letter with 10 critical questions and have demanded answers by April 10th. The heart of the investigation is whether or not the FDA has done enough to prevent and respond to all of the current shortfalls that are affecting cancer meds and non-prescription painkillers alike. The Senate is working on it too. The Senate Committee on Homeland Security is tackling the issue of drug shortages directly. It's a very serious and high-profile committee, and it's currently chaired by Senator Gary Peters, who has been rated the most effective U.S. senator from either party three years in a row. So if you want something done in the Senate, Senator Peters is the man to get it done. This committee is specifically examining drug shortages as a threat to national security. So far, they've held a hearing and issued a very comprehensive report full of recommendations. They're currently working to draft legislation that will solve some of the root causes of these drug shortages. That's huge. So far, the solutions that they're working on are focused on helping the FDA get its act together and increase their authority and total supply chain transparency. The report recommends requiring manufacturers of life-supporting and life-sustaining drugs to report increased demand and export problems to the FDA. They also want the villains in the middle to have to report low hospital fill rates. Meaning anytime a hospital gets less than 80% of what they ordered, that middleman needs to call the FDA and let them know. Their report recommends conducting a regular interagency medical supply chain risk assessment. Basically getting all of the organizations that have any kind of stake in this process together and working to identify and mitigate vulnerabilities in our pharmaceutical supply chain. They really recommend that the FDA gets its shit together and figures out how to use its own data. Abolish the PDF and develop databases that they can actually use and share with other organizations within the government. They want to work with private companies to track and share data about the supply chain, ultimately leading 
to full visibility. They also want to give the FDA the ability to issue a mandatory recall for drug products because, Jesus Christ, why can't they already do that? They also make a lot of recommendations about investing in domestic manufacturing for critical drugs, and I can't stress enough how critical that is. Everything mentioned before is useless if we don't do this. And don't get me wrong, doing so will be expensive, difficult, and time-consuming. But I am actually optimistic that we can do it. And a lot of that has to do with the work being done by President Biden. President Biden is a man of a different era, an era when America used to build things and build them well. His presidency has largely been defined by an era of domestic renewal, not politically or emotionally, but literally. He has focused his time and effort renewing U.S. infrastructure, manufacturing, and research and development. He's come out for industrial policy in a way that I haven't seen a president do in my lifetime. Industrial policy is basically the idea that the government should put its finger on the scale and take an active role in encouraging investment in emerging industries, new factories, equipment, and research across the public and private sector. The Biden administration has gone to bat for investment in the real economy. Port and freight expansion programs, clean energy tax credits and loans, boosts to manufacturing in regions that have been left behind, and massive subsidies to reestablish an entire domestic microchip ecosystem. I mean, really, it's been big investment in domestic manufacturing overall. I'm not saying he's a perfect president. There are a lot of credible critiques of Biden, but on industrial policy, there is no denying his energy and his vision. So if anyone can get us started on the right path, I think he's the guy to do it. The Biden administration recently released a new set of drug manufacturing goals and initiatives aiming at improving the supply chain for critical drugs and better predicting future disruptions. They're hoping to use biomanufacturing to produce 25% of active pharmaceutical ingredients for small molecule drugs in the United States. They want to be able to predict at least 50% of supply chain weaknesses and use biomanufacturing adjustments to contend with supply bottlenecks. The investment is awesome, and the report that they issued is inspiring. It's always good to see an administration focus on the future instead of litigating the past. His administration has also worked to strengthen our strategic reserves of critical medications. In the past, we would stockpile critical drugs and release them in the event of a shortage. But this system was not built to respond to a long-term shortage. It's only a short-term solution, and it's really expensive to maintain because most drugs only have a shelf life of two years. So if you don't use them, you lose them. However, the Biden administration has changed their approach and instead invested in securing an ingredient reserve so that in the event of a shortage, the U.S. can manufacture its own drugs. It's more efficient, too. Ingredients have a significantly longer shelf life than their finished product. And they are way more flexible. Think of it like cooking. If you buy a cake, you can only have cake. But if you buy eggs, you can make a lot of different recipes. Do you know what I mean? There is real momentum on these issues, and a lot is likely to happen over the next several months. We'll be watching closely, and hopefully you will too. The problem is big, but so is the ambition of this country, and I can't wait to see what we can do if we actually put our mind to doing it. That's it for today, guys. I just want to thank you again for hanging with me during that unplanned outage and coming back and listening to the show again. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening. And if you have any thoughts or comments on the episode that you'd like to share, you can always email me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. All right, I'll see you next week. Stay safe.